podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. It's the moment of the evening every K-State fan enjoys. Settle down and pour a whiskey, crack open a LaCroix. Please put your hands together and make a little noise for your favorite Wildcatters, the handsome Bosco boys. Boys. Come on, boys. Boys are back for episode two this week. I really want to tease what the Wednesday show might be. I'm not going to because I, you know, schedules change around and all that type of stuff, but we might have a very special show on Wednesday. No, I'm not talking about Grant. I, I'm still hoping to get get Grant on to talk about Jerome Tang. But first, we have some history that needs to be made. I went back through all 418 episodes, and I don't think we have ever had a guest make an appearance in three straight weeks. And I thought that the one person who should get that honor first is the man, <laughs> the myth, the legend, Jimmy Goheen. Jimmy, how are you doing? And how awesome does it feel that not only are you, I think, maybe now the all-time most recurring guest on the show, but the first one to ever make back-to-back-to-back guest appearances in three straight weeks? Well, I, I appreciate you having me on and and uh, being part of Bosco's Boys. Uh, you guys have always done great shows and and now you're, you know, you're kind of continuing on by yourself and you've got great lineups and this whole run these last three weeks has been lots of fun to listen to all the episodes and all the people you've had on um, just different perspectives on coach Tang and the coaching search before, you know, at the beginning and then, you know, landing our coach and seeing reactions from different people. And, and, you know, your even your, your episode today about the direction and, and seizing momentum. Um, I thought was really good. Just some good stuff about, you know, we need to keep moving forward as a, as a athletic program, not only basketball, but overall. And, you know, you touched on even, you know, volleyball, women's basketball, some other things as well. So I appreciate being a small part of that group that's been on with you. And, and I, I look forward to a, a fun show. For sure. And, and again, I, I, I do think it is important. And, and again, this is going to be basketball centric, but, Again, I'm not going to pretend to know uh, everything in the world, because if I did, if everything I said in that episode was perfect, uh, I would be a multi-million dollar athletic director <laughs> and I would be running the world. <clears throat> but I, 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 I do want to urge folks, if you haven't, go back and listen to that show on Monday, because even if you don't agree with me on how it needs to be achieved, I do think we are at a crossroads where we have rarely had this sort of momentum and fans pulling in the same direction with the two major sports and then had uh, some big time players who can move volleyball and women's basketball forward as well. So again, I'd urge folks to go back and listen to that. Tell me where you think I'm wrong. Tell me where you think you agree with me and let's have that conversation on Twitter and see if we can even maybe come up with some sort of grassroots type thing together. Uh, but today, and this is something that I, I need to give Jimmy credit for because he has acquired a lot of information. He does what he does 
best, and that is break things down to a level where the average fan probably doesn't think to, to break it down to, but it's going to change the way you look at the Coach Tang era, at least until we, he gets his own database or a few years of data set here at K-State. Uh, before we do, just real quick, everyone, we're going live Wednesday, 7 p.m. on ColorCast, getting back to our roots, Wednesday at 7 p.m. We're just going to have a fun time. I'm not sure what we're going to talk about because who knows what might happen between then and now, but we're going to go live. We're going to have a fun time. And again, athleticgreens.com slash sports drink. Folks, you've been listening to me talk about it for months now at this point. It's the perfect way to start my day. All the multivitamins, all the minerals, all the superfoods and probiotics, just in one scoop of a tasty powder instead of trying to choke down three or four different pills. Get over there, five free uh, travel packs and a year supply of vitamin D supplements. All right, Jimmy, first, I want to thank you for not or for holding off, because, again, I, I know folks have been asking for this on Twitter, these breakdowns uh, on KSO. So I first want to thank you for kind of holding off to talk about this, uh, you and me. But let's just kind of dive into it, because, again, I think there's so much here. I don't want to take it up any more of the time. But first, I want you to dive into uh, what, what you saw when you, you analyze Baylor again. Coach Tang is different than Coach Drew, but he's been there for the last 19 years. I think there's been a few different offensive and defensive schemes that they've used. They've done different things recruiting. Um, we can jump right into, if you want to, the Ken Palm rankings and the evolution of that program to just kind of kick it off if you think that's a good starting point. Yeah, I think I think it would be. I've, you know, I've got lots of stuff I put together because I thought this would, you know, when looking at coaches, you know, I can, with most other candidates have been some, had some head coaching experience. So we could kind of, I could kind of go look at their, you know, Ken Palm's the, the source I use. Um, Ken Palm breaks things down by points per possession. Then he's got what he calls the four factors uh, that basically to cover shooting turnovers, rebounding and, and free throw rate, not free throw percentage, but how many times you go to the line basically. And those have been, you know, Ken Palm has analyzed it and before him, um, some other folks. And really those four things correlate to winning and losing basketball games pretty evenly over the history of college basketball. And, and really the data that we have that's good to, to analyze this really goes back to the late 90s, early 2000s. And so I did a deep, deep dive because, you know, to, to look at Coach Tang, you really have to look at what they did at Baylor. You know, he's been there the whole time, all 19 years. He's uh, been a part of that entire rebuild. Um, that program was was in rough shape when they took over because of Dave Bliss and, and a murder in their program and, and all that stuff that I think not, most, most people a, know about. Not, yeah, not often you get a drop. A, yeah, there was a murder in the program. Yes. And again, not a teammates, laughing matter, but no, I think teammates murdering each it. other. Yeah. And, and yeah. also uh, imagine like some of these younger kids – like we, every time we do a live show, I'm surprised of how many college kids listen to the show. I bet you there are some college kids or recent graduates listening to this that don't even realize that there was an actual murder and some cover up stuff going on inside yes. the basketball Baylor basketball program. Well, that's what led coach. to Scott Drew coming to town. Yeah, it, it makes the Art Brile stuff look like child's play. Really, I mean, it was it was a pretty big deal. Anyway, so. I wanted to really deep, deep dive and look at 
where Baylor ranked over the years in the Kim Palm rankings and, and really what they did well, what they didn't don't do real well, because really that's, I think those are going to be some of the things Tang, uh, Coach Tang focuses on. He's going to have his own thing. And the other thing is Drew and, and Tang and Baylor evolved multiple times over the last 20 years as well. They haven't been the same, um, but there are some, some things that are kind of commonalities. Um, first of all, it took him really four years to rebuild. Uh, Tang in one of his interviews said um, they were told at the beginning, we'll give you eight years. We don't care anything about wins and losses. Just don't get in trouble. So basically they were like, we know you're inheriting a mess. Um, we're going to give you plenty of time. The crazy thing is by year five, they were in the NCAA tournament as an 11 seed, which is pretty amazing, especially considering their third year at Baylor, they had no non-conference schedule. And I think this is another thing people forget is that they had a season where all they got to play was the big 12. They had no prep whatsoever. And their first game was in January. So they had a whole three months where they, all they could do was practice. I mean, could I, as a coach, I can't imagine not having your first game starting the season in October. You don't have your first game until January. So anyway, uh, but really, they they kind of hit the ground running by that four season. Their their Kim Palm ranks were 232, 236, 154, and 107 their first four years. So they gradually got better. And by year four, they had Baylor in the top 50, and they got them as an 11 seed. Yeah, just for uh, by, reference, where did K-State end in Ken Palm this year? K-State ended um, in the 60s this year. So um, they were, you know, obviously a better program at that point. And, and since that point, 2008, the last 15 seasons, they've only had one season where they finished outside the top 40 in Ken Palm. And they were number 80 in 2011. Um, so they have, they've had a great run. Um, by year seven, he had Baylor in the top 10. And uh, they were a three seed. So that was a pretty dramatic build um, that they had. They did have that dip in 2011, uh, but they finished in the top 35 in Kim Palm the last 11 seasons. Their average ranking over the last 15 seasons has been number 24 in Kim Palm. And they've had 11 NCAA tournaments and three NITs. Um, NCAAs, of course, have featured a national title two other Elite Eights, and two other Sweet Sixteens. So they've had uh, five Sweet Sixteens in that time. They have back-to-back -back Big 12 titles at Baylor. Um, they had an NIT title. They had an NIT runner-up. So even when they went to the NIT, they did pretty well. Um, just in comparison, the last 15 seasons, including Frank and Bruce, K-State's average has, has been number 49 in Kipball. Of course, the last three years have, have bumped that up. But still, it would still be only in the 30s. If you if you go Frank's good to Bruce's good to the Big 12 title, it would our, our K State rank would be in the 30s. So Baylor's had a, a very quality program. Um, six times in the last 15 years, K State was in the top 30 in Ken Palm, and nine times in the top 45. And then, of course, we know in that span, K State has two Elite Eights and two Big 12 titles. So that's kind of the comparison we're making between programs. Um, <clears throat> The other thing that is interesting to me is, is just AP poll rankings. When, when Tang and Drew arrived, Baylor had been ranked a total of three weeks in the AP poll in their history, Baylor basketball. Uh, 1949 for one week and 1969 for two weeks. 
Now, the weird thing is they did have two Final Fours in 1948-1950, but it's kind of weird because, the, the, you know, K-State was in the 1948 Final Four with them, actually, which is kind of interesting. Um, but when you look back in that era, there was the NIT and the NCAA tournament. They were kind of at the same level, so teams were split. And then there were the, the rankings were weird. The final ranking uh, in 1950, uh, City College of New York won the NCAA tournament, but they were independent, and they were not ranked in the final AP poll. So I, I'd have to look at more of the history. I didn't dive into it enough to know what the world was going on. How the national title champion in the NCAA tournament wasn't even ranked in the final AP poll. That didn't make sense to me. But anyway. That's where Baylor's history was. They hadn't been uh, in the Final Four much. In, I don't think any NCAA tournaments between 1950 and uh, when Drew kind of took them to the NCAA tournament in 2008. Yeah. So, so anyway, I actually think it might be funny to like try to track down like whoever the like like foremost expert in like 1940 <laughs> to 1959 like, NCAA basketball and ask them all of these questions and get to the bottom yeah. of some of these things, because it's, I, I do dive into like, Oh, like the Wikipedia pages and just try to like look up stuff. Basketball back then, like it was wild. Like it, yeah. it, it, it definitely was wild. I, I, I won't, I won't take up much more of that time, but that, I'm putting that in the mental bank of finding whoever the, like the living expert of the 1940 to 1959 basketball year. I think it'd be super fascinating. Yeah. And then here, here's the here's the flip that's 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 just wild. So they had those three weeks. Scott Drew has had Baylor ranked 172 weeks since then. So 175 weeks total in their history, including this year, in the top 25 of the AP poll. Scott Drew has 98.3% of their rankings in the history of their program. Um, before Drew, they were never ranked higher than number 18 in the poll. Um, Drew has, Scott Drew has had them, and you know, Tang along with him, they've been ranked 83 weeks in the top 10, 52 weeks in the top five, and 11 weeks at number one. And, and those number one rankings have all occurred since 2017. So that's the heights that this program, I mean, it's not quite the same, but it really is very similar to the Bill Snyder story at Keach State. That what Scott Drew, along with Jerome, I mean, I'm going to give Jerome Tang plenty of credit because he was there the whole time, and and he's been a big part of, of this whole rebuild. Um, the Bears did have one season in 2019 where they weren't ranked at all, but other than that, they've they've been ranked um, 66% of the time in the last 10 seasons and 60% of the time in the last 15. So this is a program that really has become one of the top programs in the country, maybe not quite the blue blood status of, you know, our final four participants, but definitely in the top 10 programs, I'd say over the last decade. So that's yeah, what it, oh, go ahead, Scott go Drew ahead. And, and Jerome Tang have helped build. So, so go ahead. Yeah. So something I wanted to jump in here because I, it didn't develop into an argument, but I saw a KU fan trying to be snarky um, about, you know, Oh, if you look at some of these great coaches you know, Roy Williams, Bill Self, Coach K, and listening off all these folks and said, oh, n none of them have really been able to develop uh, assistant coaches who would go on to be good at high major programs. 
And yeah. while this is going to be Scott Drew's first guy at a power six program, here's the difference. Every guy who has left the Scott Drew tree, and again, all at smaller levels, you know, Arkansas State to North Texas, Oral Roberts, and then I think there's one down in a Florida school. I can't remember. North, North Texas. Oh, well, yeah. So, yeah, yeah it was McCaslin. North Arkansas, Florida. I mean, North Florida. North Florida. Florida. Yeah. Uh, all of them have won conference titles. All of them have won coaches of the year. All of them have gotten to postseason play. So I, I almost think that uh, – and we, we saw, you know, McCaslin has become, you know – he might be getting the SMU job. I'm not really sure, but uh, they've all kind of yep. elevated the programs that they've gone to, which I think is a fascinating trend for the folks who have gone off the Scott Drew tree. And you pointed it out correctly. There's only one guy besides Scott Drew who has been there since season one for this Baylor turnaround. And it is Jerome Tang. And again, all those, you know, accolades, they go under the head coach's record. But again, I think there has to be something to be said for only one other guy has been there from the beginning, saw how it was done, was part of the blueprint, has been part of every single success, a major part of it. And I think that's what has gotten K-State fans so excited because not only has Jerome Tang uh, grown up in the Big 12 and seen what K-State can be, well, we've seen what a team that has Jerome Tang on their bench, what they can turn into as well. Yeah, definitely. And uh, just really <clears throat> looking at, you know, the things that they've done well. I mean, first, I'm going to – I'll get into that stuff. But first, I want to talk, you know, people at K-State have liked to talk about the pace we play at for the last several years. And, and uh, Bruce, Bruce was known for playing at a pretty slow pace. You know, his, his average pace um, ranked 275 in the country out of 355, 356 Division One teams. So uh, Coach Bruce, Coach Weber was pretty slow. But the Baylor rank is 215 over the last 15 seasons. So they haven't exactly played fast basketball. They've been pretty deliberate. So I don't know if Coach Tang's going to adopt that style. Um, between uh, 2020 and 2014, they never ranked higher than 250 in the country. So they have been one of the slower pace teams. And pace varies a lot. That's why I'm using national rankings instead of the raw numbers, because I think it gives us a better perspective of where they're at. Um, and really, the, the Ken Palm breaks down an average possession length of both offense and defense, which it gives us some more insight. Um, Baylor's offense the last two years was 108 and 140 in average possession length. So they did speed it up a bit on offense, but they did go um, that same stretch from 2020 to 2014, where they ranked 250, 240 or worse in average possession length on offense, which means they were pretty deliberate taking care of the ball. Um, they didn't push transition points a lot. Um, and, and we'll get into some of the schemes Baylor's used, but, um, they were slow on offense, but they also forced teams to be slow on defense, which is, which is one of the also plays a part in your possession length and your pace. Um, this past year, uh, defense's average possession length was 200, and over the last uh, 15 seasons, offenses against Baylor have ranked 238th in pace. So they force you to run offense. They force you to take your time, and. They really make you work hard 
And I think that's dropped a little bit the last three seasons since they've gone to man-to-man defense because they've upped the turnover rate they've forced on defense. Um, and really, you, you know, you think about times when your offense takes a lot of time. It's often against the zone. And Baylor was known for their zone defense in the middle portion of the Drew era. And that's kind of when, you know, they, they were forcing teams to play a slower pace on, on offense as well. So um, just something to think about as we, as we look to the future. Um, I'm not expecting, you know, every new coach always comes in and says, we're going to play fast, blah, blah, blah. We want to pick up the pace. And most of the time that doesn't happen. I appreciate that, you know, Coach Tang did not say that. And I do expect us to kind of, at least early on, lean towards um, that pace. Now, for K-State fans, the only time we've really seen super fast pace is under Frank. And Frank's team's average rank was number 71 in the country in pace. So they were top, you know, top quarter, top fifth team in the country in terms of how fast they played. And he kind of kept that when he went to South Carolina. They've been a pretty fast-paced team there, too. So when you think about pace, you have to think about possession length. But, but that's kind of the first phase I, I wanted to break down is, is what to look for with, with what we're going to see with Coach Tang. Yeah, so here's my question. I'm going to pose this to you. And I think I know what your answer is, and I, I think I think we're on the same wavelength. Uh, K-State fans, at least throughout the process of the coaching search, would would harp yeah. on pace. And I think that's what everyone uh, just kind of decided they were going to hate on McCaslin for. Um, here's my question to you. <laughs> if we if we turn around and, and our pace is 240 <laughs> in basketball next year, but we have 26 wins, do you think anyone's going to give a shit about how fast we're playing? No, nobody will care whatsoever. Nobody cared in uh, 2019 when we were 339th in the country in pace when we won a big 12 and they didn't really care in 2018 we went to an elite eight we were 302 in the country so no that's you care about pace and and the other thing is you care about pace when your offense isn't very good because it's even more dramatically ugly when you can't score and and to be fair that was part of the bruise problem is that uh the offense was never really really efficient uh, the average efficiency for a Bruce offense was 105 in the country. And last season was his second best. This current past season was his second best at number 58. Uh, the 2013 team uh, finished at number 23 in the country in offensive efficiency. So Bruce hasn't had a lot of great offenses. And that's the next phase I want to talk about is, is the, the rebuild with Scott Drew and, and Jerome Tang came on the offensive side. That's really where they started. Um, like I said, their first three years, they were outside the top 150. Uh, by year four, even though they weren't a great team, they, they got into the top 100 and ranked number 73. And that first NCAA tournament team in 2018 ranked in the top 20. Since then, um, Drew has had uh, the last 15 seasons, their average offensive ranking has been 22.5 in the country. In the top 25, almost every year, 15 to last, uh, 13 to the last 15 seasons, their offense has been top 25 in the country. So we're talking about a coach uh, with Coach Tang that comes from a, a history of a program that was very good offensively. Only two times in the last 15 years did Baylor finish outside the top 25 on offense. In 2018, they were number 62. In 2011, they were number 99. So their worst seasons were better than Bruce's average in offensive efficiency. So 
I think we're going to look at a system and they've done a lot of different things uh, with how they've, they've done offense. We're going to look at a system where I expect one of coach Tang's major factors is to have an offense that ranks pretty good in the, in, in the NCAA in, in offensive efficiency. And, and I know Tang has said he's, his focus has been on defense, especially since he's become the associate head coach the last five years and helping them transition to the no middle defense, which we'll talk about. But I do think he was involved with offense. He coaches the offense for the uh, U.S. Virgin Islands national team. So he knows offense. He's got some other guys. Uh, Coach Maligi is an offensive guy. So I think they're going to be fine on offense. It may not be um, – maybe not that top 25 level they established at Drew right away. But I think we're going to see a top 100, top 75 offense minimum next year under Coach Tank. Yeah, so I'm, yes. I'm glad I'm glad you said that because at least some of my anxiety, and again, I'm a little curious. I, I don't know if they're waiting until they have all three assistant coaches to make yeah. the official announcement, but I mean, we've seen Yurik Malagi out recruiting. We've sure. seen Jareem Dowling, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, Dowling out recruiting. Yeah. Um, and, and part of my anxiety about those two guys, and then again, I'm not going to – I'm not going to say on this one who we think is going to be the third one, because again, it's, it's, it hasn't been widely reported. It's not a done deal. So I'm just going to leave it. Those two, um, you know, Dowling at North Texas was one of those guys who worked on the defense, who worked very closely with McCaslin's associate head coach and uh, really kind of became a defensive savant, but his main calling call is recruiting Yurik uh, Maligi, again, it, it, his calling card is recruiting. Now, he, he does have a little bit more of an offensive background. And then again, I think Coach Tang, at least how he wanted it to be presented to the world, is defense first. Um, I, I didn't do enough deep diving into him as the coach of the U.S. Virgin Islands national team. I'm happy to hear that. Do you have any sort of anxiety when it comes to the offense with the staff being uh, kind of constructed as is? And, and, and we'll just say, you know, if the third chair is rumored to be who it is, again, not, not someone who I would associate with being uh, an offense first guy. It's another recruiting first guy. Do you have any anxiety about uh, not having like a X's and O's guru on the offensive side of things? Or do you think that, hey, Tang has been around the block. He's coached it he, at Baylor. He's done it for the U.S. Virgin Islands, that it won't be a big deal. Because, again, that's been my only hangup when I'm looking at what this projected staff might be. No, I, I think that's a valid point. <clears throat> I do think, you know, there will be a synergy with how those guys work together on staff and, and what they know, where they've been. Um, the other factor is um, Coach, Coach Bourne and what he's going to add, you know, from his experience with Alcorn State and a couple other programs, smaller level programs, but still coaching basketball. So um, they will have to figure that out. They'll figure out what they want to focus on, what kind of scheme they want to focus on. But, but I will tell you, the one thing that Baylor has done the best that has nothing to do with scheme is they have been huge on the offensive rebounding and huge on the offensive class. And, you know, that's going to bring us back to our memories of the Frank era, which, which K-State was, was dominant on the offensive glass, top five in the country. Um, but here's the deal. Baylor has been top 10 in the nation in offensive rebounding each of the last nine seasons. Their average over that span is uh, number uh, 
let's see, number five in the country. So very similar to Frank type numbers on the offensive glass. And there's no scheme with offensive rebounding. It's go get the ball. It's effort. It's being in good position. And it's an emphasis on how many guys you send to the offensive class. So um, I do think that is one trait that I expect Ting to bring. Um, Baylor has been dominant off the glass. It's kind of funny because up until uh, 2009, their first six seasons, uh, their average rank was 173 on offensive rebounding in the country. That's offensive rebounding rate. So how many offensive boards they get compared to the defensive boards to the opponent. So they made a decision around 2010 that we're going to be an offensive rebounding team. And I, if, if I had a chance to interview Coach Tang, that would be one of the first questions I'd ask is, what made you think we need to become an offensive rebounding team? Because that's been the most consistent aspect of Baylor basketball over the last 15 seasons, 10 seasons, whatever you want to call it. Um, they've been very good at it. Now, the other thing is that is not something that Bruce's teams were great at. Um, we were number two, 275 last season, and the average for a Bruce team was 127. He did have a couple really good couple good seasons, but that was early, um, right after Frank. We were number 13. They were number number 17 under Bruce in, in 2016. But the last um, last six, seven years, we haven't been better than 108 in the country. So um, I like it because I do think it's something you can control as an offense. You're not making shots. You might be turning the ball over, but you can always go get the ball on a missed shot. And, and I'm encouraged that that's something we're bringing back and that will be a staple of our program because even though it does make for some ugly basketball, offense rebounding can make up for a bad shooting night. Yeah, so here's my question to you. Do you anticipate that being there next year? Because at least, and, and again, I have a small pea brain when it comes to uh, college basketball or any basketball, but I, I've watched a lot of the NCAA tournament and I have seen teams that maybe uh, have tried to do that and they really uh, allow themselves, especially when they're going up against a team that's more athletic, open themselves out to runouts. Now, yeah. Miami's issue is I think they were just lazy and they would pout when they missed shots. But you saw KU uh, able to get uh, runouts on almost every missed Miami shot. And sometimes even, and, and again, this is why I think Miami was just the laziest team uh, to ever make it to an Elite Eight. KU was getting runouts after a made bucket from Miami and just inbounding the pass and going. I have a little bit of a worry, and I, I think we're going to see uh, you know, turnover in the – in the team, uh, you know, I don't think we're going to have anywhere near the same, you know, guys on the team this year as we did last year. But, you know, you're still going to have Marquise Noel. You're still going to have uh, Nigel Pack, hopefully. You're still going to have Ish Masood. Neither of those guys really strike me as being athletic guys who can go up, go get the ball, and then if they don't get it, being able to get back and avoid that run out. How do you balance that? with a team or do you think it's just a culture thing he comes in and says hey this is what we're going to do and we're going to be good at it and then just basically you know go full doberman out there and say hey we're, we're this is who, what we stand for how do you kind of balance all of that when you may not have you know all 13 guys there for the system you want to run that, that, that it really is a good question um i do think that is something they'll have to balance as, as they look and put together their roster. I, I think 
I think we're going to see plenty of changes with guys out and new guys coming in and what they find and, and what they are able to teach in the off season going into next season will be a big factor. You know, it, it is tough to go from a team that was, you know, 275 in the country this past year in offensive rebounding rate to, to top 10. But I think they'll make a conservative effort to be a top 100 offensive rebounding team. And I'll be shocked if we aren't. Um, there's also, you know, how you set up your, your transition guys. Um, Cause you are going to, you know, you may send, if you can get away with sending three guys to the offensive glass to get offensive rebounds, or you have to send four, you're probably not going to send all five. Um, so those are, those are, you know, schematic things that they'll figure out. Now I, w- I would be fascinated to hear and be in behind the scenes on how they put that together, how they think about those schemes um, with, with offensive rebounding as a trait. Um, but it will be interesting to see because I, and I'm excited to see it back because I, I enjoyed, you know, I enjoy. I always said when Frank was here that sometimes the best pass was a missed shot. Uh, the best way to get an assist under Frank was a missed shot. And I hope we shoot better. Um, and, and I'm going to get into shooting next. <clears throat> but if you don't shoot well, at least give your chance to score a sec- on a second chance or a third chance uh, when you get in that situation. Definitely. Uh, just hop into shooting. What sort of shooters have the Bears had or what sort of uh, shooting trends did you see during the Drew Tang era in Baylor? Well, I mean, when you when you think about Baylor, to me, you think about some stud guards. You know, they just had Jared Butler a couple of years ago. They had – but then I go back to the beginning. One of the first studs I remember was Aaron Bruce. Aaron Bruce could play. He was and the he real was he was one of the key first dudes. He was from Australia, came over, had some swagger, and he was one of the first dudes. Then you had guys like Curtis Geralds, you had Tweety Carter, you had like Darius Dunn. Um, you had bunches of guys. You brought in some Juco guys. They had guys like Pierre Jackson. They had uh, McCont. Um, so they've kind of run the gamut, but they've had guards that could score. They haven't had really focused on a traditional point guard. Um, and all those dudes could shoot it. But but when you really look at shooting, um, they haven't been a great top 50 shooting team, but they've averaged number 82 in effective field goal percentage, which factors in three-point shots um, over the last 15 seasons. Uh, the Baylor title team was top 10 in effective field goal percentage. And four teams in six seasons between 2015 and 2020 um, did rank outside the top 100. So they kind of went through a phase and I'm going to get to that because I think some of that was recruiting and I'll talk about the recruiting. Um, but here's the deal. When Baylor has a top 80 shooting team, when they had a top 80 shooting team, they managed two number one seeds and three number three seeds. So they've built good teams when they had really good shooting teams. Um, then we go to the two phases of shooting, two point, three point, two point shooting has been pretty varied for Baylor over the, over the, the years. Um, They've had top 50 finishes in two-point percentage the last two seasons. Uh, before that, there were six finishes outside the top 120 over the course of seven seasons. So it's kind of been a little bit up and down. At K-State, we've had two top 100 two-point percentage seasons in the last 15, including under Frank. Uh, under Frank, his first season with Michael Beasley. So, uh, that doesn't surprise me at all that we had a top uh, top 100 shooting two-point percentage season. And then in 2017 and 2018, we had – some pretty good shooters, uh, Wesley and uh, 
Wesley Wondu carryovers year, and then uh, Dean Wade, uh, Barry Brown. The average two-point percentage in the last 15 seasons at K-State was 178. So that you compare that to 102 uh, at Baylor in the same time span, uh, Baylor has been a better two-point percentage shooting team. Not dominant, but pretty darn good. Uh, but then we get to three-point shooting. Again, it's been varied. Um, the national titles team uh, two years ago, last year was number one in the country and shot over 40% from three. So you had dude shooting the ball. I just remember when they played us twice and they just run us, uh, beat us by 40 twice, didn't they? I mean, it was ugly in, in 2021 and in, in playing those guys. Um, they've had four seasons in the last six years where they've ranked kind of between 130, 185, which isn't terrible. That's about average. But they've been mostly pretty good. Um, their average rank over the last 15 seasons is number 87 in three-point shooting. Six of the last seven, uh, 13 seasons, they've been in the top 50. So that's not bad. Um, K-State over the last decade is ranked number 208 in three-point shooting. And we finished 107 last year in three-point shooting. And I think most of us would say we thought we shot it pretty well. We had Nigel Pack, maybe the best three-point shooter in the Big 12, outside L.J. Cryer at Baylor, who got hurt. So um, that's, a, that's a good sign that uh, um, they've built ways to get good shots for their shooters. Even when they haven't been great, they've still shot it pretty well. So I think we'll see an uptick. Um, the three-point rate um, is a little bit lower at Baylor. They haven't been huge um, in the comparing the number of three-point shots to two-point shots. They've ranked number 186 in the country at Baylor in the last 15 years. And that's been pretty steady over that time period. So we're not going to see a team that shoots tons of threes, uh, but we're going to see a team, I think, when, when Tang gets what he wants and gets the shooters he wants, that shoots effective with threes. And if he can build a team around Nigel Pack, if Nigel Pack is back, I expect us to be a good three-point shooting team next year. Yeah, especially if you, if you get two more years of Nigel Pack um, and then, you know, who knows who may join him in the portal. I would love to see another guy who can be, you know, high thirties uh, three point shooting, because again, uh, you know, I, I liked Marquise Noel's game, but if you end up going back and looking at how he shot, he did not shoot from the outside nearly as yeah. well as I think a lot of K-State fans uh, think he did. Um, and he ultimately ended up being much better going towards the rim than shooting these uh, deep threes that I think kind of let him get viral. So I, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, if Tang had it his way, I think one of the top priorities in the portal uh, would be to find another dude who you can depend on to shoot in the high 30s, maybe even, you know, a tick over 40% from deep. I know that's asking a lot, but you got to think if he's building the roster uh, the way he wants to. And if he, if you're looking for a quick turnaround, that has to maybe be priority number one, don't you think? Yeah, I would, I would think they definitely need another shooter. If, if, uh, if Masood stays around, which I think he probably will, because he doesn't have many options to leave. Um, I think he is a guy that can be a good shooter from the four spot. And if they can get his mindset right on the offensive rebounding and on the defensive side of the ball, I think he can be a pretty good fit in, in a, in a drew system. We, we saw how athletic he can be with some of the dunks he had during the season 
and, and some of the plays he made toward the end of the season when, when I thought he was playing his hardest on both ends of the floor. So um, it'll be interesting to see how that evolves. Um, but, but they will and do need some more guys that can shoot the ball because, you know, Mark Smith was a pretty effective three-point shooter. And even Mike McGurl, though he was inconsistent, Big 12 play was a pretty good three-point shooter and, and helped us have a decent shooting team last year, one of our better three-point shooting teams really in the last 15 seasons. So, um, that's something that they've got to build around Nigel Pack so he can get those open shots. Um, next, next, we'll turn to turnovers and look at turnover rate, um, how often you turn over the ball compared to your possessions. Baylor really hasn't been fantastic at the turnover rate. They've averaged 166 uh, nationally in the last 15 years. Uh, 2020 and 2021, probably arguably their two best seasons, um, the COVID year and their national title. Um, they were both top 100, um, but they were 200 or worse the previous five seasons. So they've been up and down taking care of the ball. Um, <clears throat> K-State has generally been below average the last 15 seasons, ranking around 200 nationally. Um, last year's team was, was one of the better we've had recently history at number 71 nationally in turnover rate. So I don't think we're going to see some, you know, you think of teams like Wisconsin is generally one of the top 20, 25 teams taking care of the ball, teams like that. I don't think we're going to see that under Tang. And, and I don't necessarily, I don't hate that because I don't mind giving your guards the ball and letting them go make plays. Cause I think that's kind of what, you know, a high turnover rate sometimes or medium high turnover rate can mean is that you're, you got some dudes trying to make the plays, which I, which I don't mind. Um, to go along with that, I think we need to look at assist and assist rate. That kind of became a thing under Bruce, assist ball, I would call it, and uh, having a high assist rate compared to your made field goals. And, and, and Bruce's teams were generally top 50 most of the time while he was here. The last season, which was one of his best offenses, we finished at 160. So we had more guys like Noel, Mark Smith, even uh, Mike McGill at times, even Nigel Pack at times that, that would make plays off the bounce and didn't rely on assist. Um, Baylor was top 50 five of the last nine seasons with an average rank of number 67 during that time. And they kind of went, and this is something that would be interesting to break down, is, uh, is between um, 2017 and 2012, they were top 100 every year, and they had an average rank about number 46.5 nationally in assist rate. So they kind of went through a phase because um, the previous five seasons, previous six seasons, they ranked 282 in assist rate. So they went from hardly any assist per made field goals to a high rate, and then they kind of went to a medium level the last five seasons, um, although they were 51 in assist rate this past season. So that's where I talk about Baylor and Drew and Tang evolving over the years. They've, that's something that's changed a bunch is how often they have assists though. The turnover rate, you know, kind of has been varied. I think that all depends also on elite guards. Their national title year, they were only number 54, which is pretty good in the turnover rate, but they had three of the best guards in the country and Davion Mitchell, Jared Butler and Masi Oteague. So, you know, some of that's going to be dictated by having guards that are really good and really experienced. Definitely. And then again, you know, it, it is in, in so much of this, I'm looking at the lens of how quickly can we turn things around? 
I do think you have two guys, experienced guards, playing college basketball in Pac and, uh, you know, Noel. Uh, and, and again, Pac isn't as much of a playmaker as Noel is, but, but it, it is giving me a little bit of hope he can set up a system around those two guys. Um, is there anything else you want to touch on with the offense before we do get into the defense and maybe uh, talk a little bit about, you know, the no middle uh, man defense that has been kind of the buzzword ever since, you know, honestly, I would say late February when some fans started really focusing on Grant McCaslin, which I'm one of them hand up, but uh, is there anything else you want to touch on with the offense? Well, just, just two things. Your point about Noel as an experienced guard, you know, I, I really thought based on what I had seen before is that he would be more turnover prone because it looked like at Arkansas Little Rock, he took a lot of chances. But I think he really evolved into a really good point guard. Um, you know, you, it's funny that, that you see people talk about him, and I think he gets dismissed a lot, even by our own fans, that he, the only other point guard in our league that put up better numbers than him was Aquino at Baylor, who was an All-American. And if you and, look at the just raw stat line, and again, yeah. I, I know I'm the wrong person to talk to. No. We're talking raw stat line, but they were almost identical players when you look at yes. the stat line across. And Noel was honorable mention all Big 12, and he was a an all-American. And again, I think a lot of the accolades come along with okay, Baylor got a share of the Big 12, and yeah. K-State missed out on the tournament for the third straight year. I think a lot of that goes hand in hand, but if you look at just the raw stats comparing the two, they were the same player. Yeah, no doubt. And that's, it's kind of crazy to me that, you know, I think Noel with that one year he has left, he's, you know, you watch his social media, he's a hundred percent bought in Jerome Tang right now. And I think that guy is going to run through the wall for, for Jerome Tang. And I, you know, I think he did for Bruce too. I mean, that, that kid played hard, you know, he's got a ton of experience. He's going to want to go out well. And I look forward to him having a great season next year. But the other thing I just want to touch on is just briefly the scheme. Um, it's kind of funny. This is another thing Baylor's evolved a lot in. Um, I went back and found some some film and some video from, you know, five, t- five, six, seven years ago. And Baylor was running continuity offense, which means they had a set that they repeated over and over. Um, they had a, you know, a ball screen on the wing set or a dribble handoff on the wing set. They would repeat on both sides of the floor and just swing it back and forth and look for a good shot. Um, and in the last couple of years, they moved to more of what we call modern basketball. K-State did it too. Ball screens, ISO, spread the floor, get to the lane. And, you know, of course, with last year's guards, Baylor could do that and do it really well. And they weren't quite as good at it this year, um, but they still had a top 10 offense this past year, even though they weren't quite as effective at taking care of the ball or shooting the ball. But um, I, I'm anxious to see if, if, uh, if Tang steps sticks with kind of a ball screen spread offense or tries to, to work in some of the continuity stuff that they worked in the middle part of their Baylor years. Um, Cause frankly, they just had really good players, you know, and it's, it's, it's easy to say, this scheme works, but really about any scheme will work when you have good players and uh, especially, you know, a ball screen, ball screen scheme that they, they've been effective at. So 
Um, that's kind of it for the offense. Unless you have any more questions, we can dive into the defense. No, and I think you just hit it right on the point. I think that's where, uh, at least I'll speak for myself, that's where I'm, I'm almost kind of getting antsy. I'm, I'm almost getting a little impatient of like, ooh, I, I want to see who he can bring in. I want to see the transfers. Oh, can you pull one of these, you know, high-profile uh, prep guys or high school guys? Uh, because, again, I, I think if you have the talent on basketball, I think Jerome Tang is the coach who will trust players to make plays and he will uh, put them in positions to make plays. And I think really in modern offensive basketball, you can you can manufacture points. And the, the guy down the road and Bill Self does it just as good as anyone, you know, coming out of timeouts, coming out of inbound plays. You know, a good coach can draw up points, you know, six to eight points a game. But if you have the dudes, forget the six to eight points. They're going to go out there and get you 70. So um, that's kind of where I'm almost getting a little – uh, imp- impatient and just like, oh, come on. I, w- I want to see who's next. I want to see who comes in. So that's just kind of where I am uh, trying to project out the offense specifically for next year. Yeah, for sure. Um, turning to defense, um, the, the defense at Baylor as they evolved, excuse me, as they evolved, the program was a little bit behind the offense, but honestly, their step to the next level over the last three seasons came because they built a dominant defense that they went from defense that consistently ranked in the top 30, top 40 over the last 12, 13 seasons to a top 25 defense in each of the last three seasons and a top 15 defense twice. So that's really the key, I think, to them evolving to a national title caliber team, a one seed each of the last three seasons um, was figuring out how to play defense and switching, I mean, to me, it's a major switch. If you think back about the long, lengthy Baylor zone defenses that we remember from, you know, five, six, seven, eight years ago to what they became the last three years with man-to-man, no middle, very similar to Texas Tech, <coughs> that's quite a switch to make. And, um, you know, as, as, t- as Coach Tang has said multiple times, he was – in the middle of that switch. He was kind of the defensive coordinator at that point in time after he took over the associate head coach job five years ago, that he was he was really part of that switch. Now, that's not to say they weren't good in zone defenses because they really were. They were, you know, an average rank in the top 45 since 2010 and an average, average rank in the top 35 of the last 12 seasons. So they've been pretty good. Eight of those, those seasons, they've been top 50. And six of the last eight, they were in the top 25 in defensive efficiency nationally. So, so they've been pretty good. Um, the, the other thing, when you look at their success, when they are in the top 50 on defense at Baylor, they made the NCAA tournament seven of eight times with three one seeds, four three seeds, and then one time they were in the NIT. And that was mainly because their offense ranked number 62. So when their defense has been good, their team has been good. So I think Jerome Tang is going to take um, – into uh, his mind and his mindset as he builds his program that he does want to have a good offense, but defense is going to be the key to, to the word he used to elevate the program to the level he wants it to be. And I, I think that is something that K-State fans and, you know, we all like to complain about the offense, yada, yada, yada. Uh, but I think K-State fans, when they will appreciate and really gravitate towards 
a great defense. And again, uh, you know, that that's what you, when you look back at some of these teams, at least in, in, in my head, you know, you, you think of Barry Brown, defensive player of the year, you think of the, you know, I, I talked about earlier, the Dobermans, it's offensive rebounding and, and you know, in your face, uh, good defense. You know, when we won the big 12, you know, it, it was, it truly was. I mean, you remember some of those games versus Baylor and Texas tech those years, you know, it, it could look like a football score at the end of the game, but I think it's something that K-State fans appreciate is that good defense. And, you know, that that's kind of what was a little upsetting this year. You, you took a big step forward with the offense, but the defense, you know, the, the Bruce Weber defense that you really attach yourself to in the good years just wasn't there. So I, for one, am, am excited. And I'm hoping he can bring that level of defense consistently back to K-State. So uh, what, what I am going to ask on, you know, for – you know, the people like me out there who hear no, no middleman defense, you know, it, 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 once you hear the phrase, you start seeing it on Twitter, you start seeing it on message boards, you even hear it during broadcasts and you can't get away from it. But what, what does that even mean? What, what is the no middleman defense? Well, it's, it's man-to-man defense that, that almost becomes a zone on the weak side once you get the ball where you want it to go. And, and where the no middle defense wants the ball to go is first to the sideline and then cut the floor in half. Don't let the ball get reversed. They don't want it to get back across the top, either with a pass or with a uh, ball screen. And the thing that you'll notice that's different than the way we played defense under Bruce or Frank is that when people guard the wing, they will face the sideline. When defenders guard the wing, they're going to face the sideline and they're going to play up high on the offensive player, almost on his top foot. That's intended to put the ball to the baseline. We want the ball to go to the baseline, which is different than, you know, some of some other defense philosophies you may have heard of is that you want to take away the baseline. No, that's not the case. But when they force the ball to the baseline, they want there to be help. And that's where your weak side defenders, usually it's the lowest guy, often the guy guarding the post. He's got to be able to step out and get outside the lane to the block and cut off and trap when that wing defender forces baseline. And here's where the other thing that, that you'll notice changes with if you go watch Baylor's defense over the last three seasons is the other three guys, those two guys, the ball defender and the, the weak side defender that's going to help are going to trap around the block area. The other three guys, back in the day, I always learned ball you man, pistols, point at both your man and the ball, all those things, get your butt to the rim. They do not do that in the no middle defense. If you're the backside two or three weak guys, your eyes are on the ball and you're facing the ball. And that's to be able to see and, and catch and, and intercept passes that come from when that trap comes from when you get ideally that trap on the baseline. Um, now, Baylor's difference that sometimes they would do is, is Michigan runs a style that's kind of adopted from the NBA, which makes sense with Juwan Howard's background in the NBA, is that they will not always help with that bottom guy, is they'll let the, the guy guarding the ball, taking it to the baseline, go one-on-one and see what happens. And then they'll play straight up on the backside. And Baylor will do that sometimes where they won't help aggressively with that, that low defender on the backside. 
The other thing you'll notice with Baylor, and this is where it'll be interesting to see the personnel we put together, <clears throat> is if the ball gets out of that trap, usually it's going to be a skip to the backside corner or to the backside wing. Then it's a scramble drill. And the first guy that's available is going to go get the ball. The other one or two guys is going to adjust to the next pass. And that's where you have to have athletes and you have to have length because you've got to be able to get out there and defend a three-point shooter before they can get the shot off and make them pass the ball until you can recover. And then you're back in the middle. You're back to forcing to the sideline. You're back to forcing to the baseline. So that's what the no middle defense is about to me is, is really forcing that ball, defending, facing the sideline, not facing the floor, facing the sideline, and then forcing that ball down to help on the block area or taking your chances with that guy guarding one-on-one and seeing if, he, if, he, if, if, if that guy's going to beat you. And if, if you don't have dudes that can beat them, they're going to play that way the rest of the game. And I think that's something we saw at K-State, especially the last two years. This year we were better because we had some guys that could break it down. But the last two years it was it was ugly sometimes. Definitely. So, Coach Tang, the the phrase, and, and I don't know if he said this in the breakout session, if it was the main press conference or if it was the one-on-one with Wyatt, because, again, I, I've, I've, I think, listened to everything he's done while he's been wearing purple like seven or eight times. Yeah. But he says he's not married to a style. He's married to winning. So that's, yeah. that, that's a, that's a good thing to say. I would almost say that's a coach speak thing to say, how much do you believe that? And then uh, if, if you do kind of like, eh, okay, dang, like you think he's going to stick to some of these uh, styles. Uh, what do you think are the one or two biggest needs to, evolve this roster to do what he wants to do? Well, I, I think athleticism and length. Um, ball pressure is a big deal. Um, the funny thing about Baylor, when they were in their zone defenses, they weren't forcing a ton of turnovers. Um, that's something we got used to under Bruce is that we had tie, high turnover rates, um, often um, in the top 50. Um, Bruce's turnover rate ended up at number 58 in the country. But and that key, you know, stretch leading up to the Big 12 title, K-State was in the top 25 for four straight seasons in turnover rate. Um, and that's really the switch that the no-biddle created for Baylor over the last three seasons is they've been 22 or better in turnover rate the last three years. The previous, the previous 14 seasons, they were never better than number 73 in the country in turnover rate at Baylor. And most of the time they were ranked in the 200s or even the 300s in turnover rate. So turnover rate will be interesting to watch to see if, if we bring that and keep that kind of mantra that we had um, at, at K-State. The other thing that we didn't see much at K-State under Bruce especially was a, a high block rate, blocking a high amount of shots and keeping the two-point rate low for opponents. Um, Bruce's defense were defenses were never in the top 100 in block rate and average only 229 over the last 10 seasons. The two-point rate allowed under Bruce was 171 uh, with a top 100 two-point percentage defense only twice in 2017 and 2014. Baylor has averaged in the top 65 in block rate and the top 100 in two-point percentage rate allowed over the last 15 seasons. 
And four, four of the last six seasons, they were top 50 in block rate. Three of the last six seasons, they were top 50 in two-point percentage uh, defense allowed. So that's a different emphasis than what we've seen under Bruce. And that was both for Baylor in both their man-to-man phase and in their zone phase. So that's really built by having some long, stretchy, true rim protectors, protectors which we really haven't seen at K-State since maybe J.O. I mean, he no, was probably – true rim protector we've seen. So that's going to cause a different type of mindset for who we bring in, which, which, you know, makes me wonder about how does a guy named like Davion Bradford fit? Is, is he going to be back? Cause he really doesn't fit the kind of scheme. I mean, Jerome Tang has been credited with, with, with coaching up the, the fours and fives and, he took a guy like Gillespie, who was a Division three player in the middle of Minnesota, brought him to Baylor, and made him a second-team All-Big 12 player his senior year and built, helped them adjust from the zone defenses they ran to a man-to-man defense. So that'll be interesting to see because, you know, Tang's credited with being a 4-5 and five coach. So um, that's something we want to see be much better as we move forward at K-State. And it's going to have to be better if we run what we want to run under Baylor. Definitely. All right. Are you done with the defense? Because this bullet point, when I saw this show up in the outline you gave me, <laughs> it made me smile, made me laugh. And I'm legitimately on yeah. the edge of my seat uh, to Picking hear this on. breakdown. So yeah. are you ready to move on from the defense to two foul participation? <laughs> yes. And in your words, a fan favorite. It is a fan favorite because – Bruce has gotten crushed for two foul participation over the years. And frankly, uh, this is what K-State fans kind of forget, is that Frank was not much better at it. Both of them are coaches that did not play players very often in the first half when they had two fouls. Bruce's rank was number 274 in the country over his 10 seasons. And Frank's average at K-State was 225. And then I went, I went and looked at South Carolina. He ranked in the 300s most seasons. So both of those coach, the last two coaches we had did not play dudes with two fouls in the first half. That's going to be different, I think, under Tang if he adopts any of Drew's philosophy. Drew has been top 70 in two foul participation over the last 15 seasons. So that is one thing I think K-State fans can get past is that when guys get two fouls in the first half, they're probably going to come out and get a chance to play until they get their third. And I think the one game K-State fans probably remember is Barry Brown getting two fouls against uh, UC Riverside in the in the opening round. Was it Riverside uh, or Irvin? UC Irvin. Yeah. Yes. You're thinking Michael. of Woldridge. I'm thinking of Woolwich. Woolwich is on my mind. No, UC Irvine when we lost in the first round after the Big 12 title. And, and Barry sat out a ton of the first half. So I don't think we're going to see that come back. And I'm, you know, I've, I think you can win both ways. There's plenty of coaches that don't play guys with two fouls that do are successful, but um, I'm kind of happy to see that change. I think it will change. All right. And then the, the last thing that is on your breakdown and, and honestly, I love the X's and O's and I, I love everything you broke down, but uh, ultimately, I think this final point is the difference, and this will ultimately be 
you know, the genesis of if Tang is going to succeed at K-State or not, and it's recruiting. Walk me through the trends of stuff you saw of the Tang and Drew era at Baylor. Yeah, there's, I've got a bunch of stuff on this. I've, <laughs> I'm crazy enough that I went back and looked at all 19 recruiting classes they brought into Baylor and what types of players they brought in, what they were rated, how many were transfers, how many were JUCOs. Um, but to kind of set the standard, um, I don't want to bash our last staff, but I'm going to talk about what we did over the last 10 years and even going back to, to Frank. Um, Anyway, the last 10 years, K-State has landed 35 high school recruits. Of that group, seven were four stars, which is 20%. Zero were five stars. 80% were three star below. Eight recruits were ranked in the top 150 on rivals, uh, which is 23%. Four were top 100, 11%. And one was rated in the top 75, which is Nigel Pack, actually. The four star recruits were Malik Harris, who left program, Dean Wade, Xavier Sneed, Dewan Gordon, who left the program, and then Davion Bradford, Nigel Pack, and Selton McGrell, who's already left the program, I think. So um, retention wasn't great. And that's really, to me, the key that, that has to change. Over the last 10 seasons, 60% of the high school recruits brought in by Bruce's staff transferred out of the program. And that does not include Selton Miguel uh, declaring for the portal last week. So 40% retention rate. Now, I will say um, Tang did mention something like a 16% retention rate or 16% uh, loss rate. I, I'm anxious to see what his numbers are based on because mine aren't quite that good, but they're pretty darn good. Now, I will go back one more step because I do think we want to look at the height of K-State recruiting that we know as fans, which would be Frank and Huggins. During that time, we landed three five-star recruits, Michael Beasley and Walker, of course, and Wally Judge. And then we landed three more four-star recruits, Dominic Sutton, Rodney McGruder, Nino Williams, um, were those three four-star recruits. So um, still under Frank and Huggins, two-thirds of our recruits were three-star guys, so 66% unranked players. Retention rate was better at just over 60%, but still not the number we're going to see for Baylor. Plus, that first recruiting class was a unique situation for Coach Huggins, especially when you talk about Walker and Beasley and, and that thing. So I'm not sure we're going to see that again, and I don't expect to see that again. Um, also, Last 10 seasons, we brought in six JUCO players and eight transfers. Our junior college retention rate was 33%. And then our transfer retention rate was the best of any group, 75%. So the overall retention rate for the program under Bruce was 46%, which in my opinion was the major reason we thought we saw the first dip uh, before the Big 12 title in the Elite Eight. And then we saw the collapse over the last three seasons was really not retaining players. So let's get to Baylor. Um, at Baylor, Tang helped recruit 76 players over 19 classes. 49 or about 65% were high school recruits. <clears throat> 11 or about 15% were JUCO recruits and 16, just over 21% were transfers from division one schools. 
First, the high school breakdown. Of the 49 signees, four were four-star recruits, or five-star recruits, so 8% were top 15. 27 were four-stars, 55%. 16 were three-stars, 33%, and two were two-stars. So already we're looking at a program that brought in 55% four-stars and 63% four-star or above. So we're talking about a major difference than what we've seen at K-State. And that includes when they first took over and they were dealing with a murdered player in their program. One of the two-star recruits they brought in was Aaron Bruce, who became Baylor's first really good player. And uh, to be fair, the ranking system and rivals was probably a bit different back then as well. The, the other thing I want to think about is we think about how ba bad that program was their third class at Baylor they landed three top 110 recruits in their third class their first two classes did not have a top 100 recruit but by year three they were landing top 110 recruits and from here um, Baylor landed at least one top 150 high school recruit in each in 16 of the last 17 classes so they've averaged one top 150 a season not averaged they've landed at least one 69% of the recruits in the last 17 seasons have been top 150, 45% have been top 100, 33% top 75, 14% top 50, and 8% in the top 25. So those are some things to start with. I've got more, but if you have any other questions or comments, feel free to add them now. Yeah, and, and here's the thing. Uh, while Baylor is in the state of Texas, so, you know, and I don't know if you have the breakout of how many of those, you know, top 150 guys are Texas or not. Um, and if you don't, it doesn't really matter. Um, but it, it is still Waco, Texas. Again, you know, it's, it's halfway in between Dallas and Austin. It is a shitty city to be. Um, I, I believe demonstrably Manhattan is a better place to be than Waco, Texas. Um, and, and again, I understand that, you know, the idea of, it, you know, it's easier to get Texas kids to go to Waco and all that jazz. You know, I, I'm not trying to say expect the exact same stuff in Manhattan, but if you're a, excuse me, if you're able to be part of a, uh, a staff that gets that sort of recruit recruiting results to Waco effing Texas, you can expect to at least hope to be in the similar ballpark bringing kids to a much better college town that is Manhattan, Kansas. I, that, that was my only editorialize. Uh, no real questions. I, I just kind of want to say, I understand when you're in, you know, the Lone Star State, it might be easier to grab those guys, but Waco is a freaking dump. And Manhattan yeah. is amazing compared to that place. Now, now here's, here's the thing I, that I want to, you know, I'm anxious to see what happens as they start to recruit players because they're, have some been some evolutions in recruiting at Baylor that I want to talk about a little bit. Um, from 2005 to 2013, Baylor really had their peak high school recruiting period. They brought in 23 top 150 players, 14 top 75, and three top 10. Harry Jones, Quincy Miller, and Isaiah Austin. I'm sure most K-State fans remember that. And that was out of 27 total recruits. So over half of the recruits they brought in were top 75 players. 
That's pretty amazing, high school recruiting advice. But then it kind of flipped in 20, 2009. Uh, they also had their worst run of attrition. Between those 2009 through 2013 classes, those four classes, they brought in 17, including all three of those top 10 recruits, nine top 75 recruits, um, but they lost eight. So their attrition rate in that period was almost 50%. So I don't know if it was because they had too many egos or they had the wrong kind of guys or they, you know, they, they happened to hit on so many high recruits. Now, they didn't lose any of those top three, top 10 recruits. All those dudes went on to get drafted besides Isaiah Austin only because he got six. We got sick and, and couldn't play NBA basketball. But that's kind of wild that they had that run. Um, and then it's kind of weird to watch the transition. After that, they kind of slowed down their high school recruiting. Um, and from then until last year's class, it was still solid. They brought in 17 more guys. 11 were 150 compared to 23. And only two were top 75. And both of those top 75 guys were last year's class, um, Kendall Brown and um, um, not Sokum, um, the other guy. The guy. He's hurt. He Prior, didn't play this year. Prior. No, it was this year's past year's class. There was another guy. Um, I'll look it up here. He came in and he was hurt, so he did not get a chance to play. Oh, okay. Langston Love. He was oh, a yeah, four-star. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a four-star kid that, that didn't get to play last year. So it's interesting that it slowed down a lot. They still recruited better than K-State did in the same time period. Um, but but then you got to look at the the flip that happened. And even though the, the Bears have always had some success with JUCOs and transfers throughout their history, it really flipped in, in about um, that when, the, when they, after they had that kind of peak recruiting class and lots of attrition. Um, I went through and just looked at their production scoring wise on their roster um, from 06 to 11, the majority of the production came from high school recruits. Guys like Aaron Bruce, Gerald's, who we mentioned, Kevin Rogers, Dunn, Perry Jones. Those were the feature guys. 2010 may have been when that started to change. <clears throat> it was one of their first real impact transfers. He only played one year, but it was a Michigan transfer named Ekpia Udo. And you may remember Udo. He was really good. He got drafted after his one year at Bayes Players in the Year. Then starting in 2012, they started hit for, on some JUCOs and transfers. Pierre Jackson, Kenny Cherry, Joe Akul, uh, Nunu Omak. Those were all guys that were top three scorers in the program. Then they brought in transfers. Brady Heslop was a transfer. Royce O'Neal was a transfer. Manu LeCompte was a transfer. Mason was a transfer. Mario Kegler was a transfer. So we saw that kind of first evolution with those guys. And then we saw it, the blend, the ultimate blend the last three years, Masio Teague, Avian Mitchell, transfer, Freddie Gillespie, transfer, Jonathan Tachma Tawacha, I can't say his name right, Jonathan Titi, and then Adam Flangler, uh, Flagler. So all these high, these dudes, and then they blended the high school dudes they brought in, Jared Butler, Mark Vital, Matthew Meyer, LJ Cryer, Kendall Brown, and then this year, Sockham, Jeremy Sockham. 
And that brought them their best three-year stretch in program history. So I say all that, that's a lot of stuff to throw out there, but what's Tang going to take from all that? I mean, there's a lot of stuff in there going through all of that over the years that is, is going to factor in. And then one last thing about attrition. We've talked about K-State's attrition problem. 60% of our high school players left the program last 10 seasons. What do you guess Baylor's retention rate has been in 19 years in high school players? And what did you say ours was the last 10? 40% retention. Okay. Ours is 40% uh, retention for high school guys for them. I'm going to say 69%. Very nice. Uh, You should have rounded down, Jimmy. Round down to 69. 70% retention rate for high school guys. And I went through that period where they lost a bunch. They lost almost 50% in a four- to five-year period. But they've still had a 70% retention rate. For JUCO players, 90%. For transfers, nearly 90%. And the overall retention over the last 15 years, over the last 19 years, is 75%. So that's a program that learned how to keep players. I mean, to me, 20 25% seems really low. Um, I think he said the average in high school, in in college basketball, uh, transfer rate was like 40% in his interview. I can't remember the exact number, but I think he's got a, a thumb on how to build a culture to, to really be successful as, as we look at it. And then, you know, some, one last thing. Um, when we look at using rivals rankings, 69% of Baylor's high school recruits have been top 150. Nice. Compared, to 30, compared to 32% for K-State, including Beasley and Walker. 45% have been top 100 compared to 15% for K-State. 33% top 75 compared to 8% for K-State. And 40% top 50 compared to 6% for K-State. And all three of those top 50s came by Frank's second class at Kansas State University. And then one last thing. They have produced nine NBA lottery picks, or draft, not lottery picks, draft picks. So almost 15% of the players they recruited to Baylor were NBA draft picks in 19 seasons. So I'm not sure we're going to quite get to that, but I'm, I'm confident that we're going to be better recruiting under Tang and the staff he's bringing in and be closer to the Baylor numbers than we have been to the K-State numbers the last 10 to 15 seasons, which has been peak K-State basketball for you and I's lifetime. Oh, yeah. And, and again, I I think when you, when you lay all that out, I, I think you do kind of realize what Bruce was able to do as a coach and even yep. what Frank was able to do as a coach with those guys. And, and I'm, I'm not going to now turn around and run them down, but I, I will say this. I, I think Jerome Tang – has some legitimate coaching chops to him. And if you're able to take that and combine it with what we both hope is going to be world-class culture, not to like get too Matt Campbell-y, but, you know, build a really good culture to go along with getting some really good dudes. 
the best I, versions of ourselves you can possibly be. That's what exactly. You're <laughs> exactly. Uh, I, I, you can't help but get really excited and start to think that we're hopefully on the cusp of a very fun and good run uh, for K-State basketball. So yeah, here's, here's one, one more tidbit, just to, to, something I looked at that was kind of interesting to me. So I looked at the number of players, total players on the roster and where they ranked at any given time over the last 15 seasons. Any given time over the last 15 seasons, Baylor's averaged almost five top 100 players on the roster, almost one and a half top 50 players on the roster, and about half of a top 10 player on the roster at any given season over the last 15 seasons. That's the talent you're talking about that creates an elite top 25 basketball program, which is what they've been, which is what we want to get to. No, I... I agree with you, and that, that that truly is wild. And I believe in Jerome Tang. I, I think he's going to bring that level of player, that level of excitement, and that level of play to uh, the Cats. Um, Jimmy, I, I, I think that, you know, Grant always used to make jokes about how the most effort he ever put into an individual show was the very first show when he scouted Kentucky. I have to say this. I think that it probably has been all the way back to that first show that we've had someone bring this much research to an episode. So I have to thank you for all the work you did. Is there anything else, any final bow you want to put on the Jerome Tang era or anything you want to say to the hundreds of thousands of folks who are probably listening to this right now? I'm, I'm just excited to, to, to what we see next. Uh, you know, we're, you know, Watching Twitter, watching KSO today, we're always we're already seeing some names of of high school recruits, transfers pop. Um, we're going to start seeing the staff land some of those guys over the next few weeks, and uh, enjoy the time and enjoy the anticipation of a new season and a new new culture, a new staff. Um, and you know, if you have other questions that you want to ask me send them to me on Twitter or on KSO. I'll be happy to try to answer any questions you have about any of the stuff I threw out there. I know it's kind of, you know, a podcast with the fire hose of, of stats thrown at you, but I, I enjoy this kind of stuff. I enjoy researching this kind of stuff. Um, so if you have anything you want me to look at, I'll be happy to do so. Um, but hopefully my hope is that we have a little tiny picture of what we might see uh, with Jerome Tang. And, I, and that was my goal with this is just, you know, let's think about what could happen. Let's think about what we might see next year and in the next five years, the next 10 years. And and hopefully I can come back to this in, in five years from now and see where I was right, where I was wrong and, and where this program's headed. And hopefully by five years, we, we've talked about an elite eight, maybe even a final four, big 12 title, because I, I think it could actually happen. Definitely. All right. Um, I'm, I'm going to throw this out here. Whoever in late March of 2027 who goes back and kind of scorecards any of Jimmy's predictions, I will send you, I will buy you a K-State Nike polo uh, or Adidas, God forbid Adidas, but whoever the official supplier is of K-State sports, if you listen to this episode in, I guess, you know, 2027, 2028, late March and kind of scorecard Jimmy 
send a report card to at KSU underscore fan and at Scott Wildcat, assuming Twitter is still a thing and also assuming the world is still around. I will buy you a K-State, a piece of K-State Nike merch. So there's a challenge to all the boneheads five years in the making. Uh, so yeah, that's all I have. Uh, Jimmy, thank you so much again. Boneheads, we love you guys. Fingers crossed that we have a, a long-awaited episode that'll drop Wednesday. Uh, if not, maybe I'll just uh, publish the, my conversation with Grant uh, on Wednesday. Speaking of Grant, he's always going to be at the cat head waiting for you guys. You just have to go and find him. Hail to the purple, hail to the white, wildcat in spirit, wildcat in fight. Hail alma mater from sea to sea, onward forever, hail victory. Fight, UK State Wildcats form, alma mater fights, glory in the combat for the purple and the white, faithful to our colors, we will ever be a fighting, ever fighting for a wildcat victory. Fight, 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 UK State Wildcats for alma mater fight, 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 glory in the combat for the purple and the white, faithful to our colors, we will ever be fighting, ever fighting for a wildcat victory. Go State! Podcast Network.